Have you ever arrived at the end of such a terrific experience that you wanted to do everything possible to prevent it from ending and you wanted to do everything possible to finish on a high note? What do you think of when I say that? I think, for instance, of our raclette meal every Christmas Eve where we sit for long hours at the table with great food. I think of, for instance, the only cruise I've ever been on. Several of the family members were grateful to see dry land, but I had no interest. Paradise at sea sounded good as far as the eye could see. I think of our honeymoon. No details needed other than it offered undistracted, unrushed, probably unrepeatable times with my new bride. I think of the final days of last summer, 2020, after four months of our whole family being together before we sent two kids off to college to be seen again just this week. What do you think of? Today, I have kind of that same feeling as we get to the end of our fall series in Romans, and actually at the end of our uh, four-year series in this majestic letter. If you have your Bibles, turn, if you would to Romans chapter 16, Romans 16, and by way of review for the past four years intermittently, we've been looking at Romans 1 to 4, which is anchored in the gospel, Romans 5 to 8, transformed by the gospel, Romans 9 to 11, called to the gospel, Romans 12 to 16, living out the gospel. Hope you have your Bibles there. Just raise your hand if you want a copy on loan to you. Uh, If you forgot yours or a gift to you, if you don't have one, you'll want to follow along and we'll be several other places in addition to the last three verses of Romans chapter 16. We often do this here at Grace. I'm going to ask you to stand and we have all of three verses to read here. And uh, I'm going to ask you to read it aloud with me. I know that you have masks on. Thanks for wearing those, which means you need to speak at twice the normal volume so that everyone around you hears. Would you read with me off the screen Romans 16, 25 to 27? Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks. You may have a seat. This is what we call a doxology. That's a big word to describe when we ascribe glory to God. And it's possible to lose that emphasis through the dense wording of these last three verses. But if we take the first part of verse 25 and verse 27 in this final benediction, we see the centrality of the glory of God. Now to him it reads, then verse 27, the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. And with that, Paul reaches the end of his reflection to the Romans, and he's left in awe. God deserves all the glory. And if you leave here remembering nothing else, remember that God deserves all the glory, and you and I benefit eternally from that. Now, that's not a zero-sum proposition. It's not as if either God gets recognition of his glory 
or we get all of the good blessings that we long for. It's not heads, God wins. Tails, you lose. It's a win-win. We win as victors when God wins as the glorious one. And we win not just as individuals in the body of Christ, as part of the bride of Christ, but collectively we win. The church around the world through the ages. That was certainly true in the church at Rome. And that's true in Columbus. There's another doxology and another one of Paul's letters that reads remarkably similar to this. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. Here it is. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. One author called this climactic paragraph at the end of Romans the greatest ever written. And I can hardly disagree because it, it pulls together many of the main themes, the core themes in this letter, at least as much as three verses allows. So let's dive in and follow along Paul's culmination to the Romans. You can follow along in the worship program that you have or go to gracepolaris.org program and see our outline. First point, God's capability in your lives. Verse 25. Paul begins with this rapturous praise for God, that God alone deserves the glory. And we're going to get to that toward the end. But first, Paul wants to emphasize the worthiness, the wonder of God in terms that the Romans would understand so that they would understand the benefit to them. With God's glory, Paul says to them, there's something in it for you. In seven and a half weeks, there is going to be an inauguration in Washington. And in all likelihood, whether you like this or not, the spotlight will be on a new President Biden. And he may tout some of the characteristics that make him worthy and deserving, like all who have gone before him. You know, political leaders do that when they give an acceptance speech of sorts. It was just over four years ago that another aspiring candidate said, I alone can fix this. In all likelihood, the incoming president will also declare that. But like them, he'll also declare that a win for him is also a win for you. That's standard fare. Peace and prosperity shall be yours. Harmony and health will be yours. And there will be all manner of success in society. Some, some version of when I win, when I'm in charge, you win too. Now, we know if we've lived much in life that with human beings, there's always the inevitable letdown and disappointment, but not with God. See, when God leads, when God is in the spotlight, when God gets the glory, we're guaranteed to benefit. Here's what Paul says at the beginning of verse 25 to the Romans, that God will establish you according to my gospel, a fascinating claim. If you were to go back to the beginning of the letter to the Romans, chapter 1, verse 16, we read that the gospel brings salvation to all who believe. The gospel is powerful to save. We believe that. But not only that. Here, Paul assures us that the gospel is also powerful to establish. 
The word means to strengthen, to, to root, to fortify, to anchor in the face of opposition. That, that means when the countervailing winds blow, when the pressures grow, you're able to stand your ground, you're able to keep your place. Have you ever been in a ferocious windstorm, or maybe better yet, a hurricane? How many of you have experienced a hurricane before? Okay, clearly we live in Columbus, Ohio. Well, if you're like me, you've talked to people who have, and I have several relatives who have, and they give a mesmerizing description of it. Those who are anxiety-prone seek out the, the safest, driest, sturdiest place inside to worry out the storm. They, they want structures around them to keep them secure. The adventurous people, some might call them the stupid people, go out to the coast where they can feel the blasts of the wind, where they can feel the sideways rain, where they can see the huge waves, where they can hear the, the breaking of objects, the snapping of trees. And even then, when the weather reaches its greatest ferocity, they look for something that will hold them safe, that will, that will tether them to stable ground. They want to be anchored. They want to be secured. They want to be rooted. According to Paul here, believers are placed back in the world by God, and it's a world that buffets their lives, a world that, that hits them from multiple directions, their faith that is. And so they, we have no choice but to seek to find security somewhere, an anchor in something, and that something Paul says is the gospel. The gospel is the truth about who God is and about a God who is for us and with us in Jesus Christ. What does God strengthen us from? If you remember back in September, we read the, the topic sentence of this whole section, Romans 12, verse 2, where this banner-sized hint tells us what we're strengthened from. We're strengthened against the temptation to be conformed to the pattern of this world. The pattern to think like this world, to act like this world, to talk like this world, to prioritize like the people of this world, to, to love like them, to seek joy like them, to place our hope like them. God is able to establish us, Paul says, so that we can resist that temptation and embrace Christ. John Piper says memorably, God is able to strengthen you with a kind of inner strength of soul through faith in Jesus that makes you stronger in a wheelchair than 10,000 moral jellyfish drifting on two legs with the current of modern culture. That despite the apparent lack of mobility, that you have a moral and spiritual spine that thousands around do not. Paul assures his readers in Rome, and us as well, that God gives us strength to stand, that he will complete the good work that he started in you. He says that elsewhere. To the Corinthians, he writes in 1 Corinthians 1.8, he will also keep you firm to the end. To the church in Philippi, he writes, chapter 1, verse 6, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. In fact, this was the central reason that Paul wrote this letter to the Romans. He wanted to strengthen them. He, he describes in 16 chapters the breadth and the depth of the gospel. Some people read that and think it was a waste of time. Do you? I mean, the Roman believers were already saved. 
They had already placed their trust in Jesus Christ. Why is Paul spending all this time describing the gospel in this way? That's a question many people have. They think the gospel is your ticket in. And it's up to you to make it work. That's not the teaching of the Bible. The gospel is the A to Z of life with God. Let me say that again. The gospel is the A to Z of life with God. Tim Keller writes, the gospel is not only the entry point into the Christian life, it's also the way we continue in, grow in, enjoy life with Christ. The gospel is not only the way in, but it's also the way on to the end. So when Paul describes the gospel, he's not just talking about an abstract set of principles. It's, it's not that. He's not just talking about a grand story from God. It is that. But he's talking about the very message, the very reality that personally invaded his life and turned his life upside down, changed him from top to bottom. That's why he doesn't just call it the gospel. He calls it here, my gospel. Changed his life, changed his faith, changed his future. Can you say about the gospel that it's my gospel too? Could you summarize the gospel in a way that shows that it has radically transformed your life, your faith, the way you think, your future? There's something else here in this verse that is astounding. It's described vividly, and I want to read this from Pastor John Piper. Quote, many kings in history and many dictators today intend to get glory. They want to be known as strong and rich and wise. And how have they done it? Well, they've done it by keeping their citizens weak and poor and uneducated because an educated people is a threat to a dictator. A prosperous middle class is a threat to a dictator. A strong people is a threat to the strength of a dictator. So what do dictators do? They secure their own power by keeping their people weak. If ever there was a king who had the right to display his glory by stepping on the backs of rebellious people, it's God. But what does God do? God displays his glory by making his people strong. God magnifies his glory by making you strong with his gospel. God doesn't feel any threat by your strength at all. In fact, the stronger you and I are in faith and hope and love in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the greater God appears. The gospel strengthens you and it brings glory to God. Talk about the ultimate win-win. Beginning at the end of verse 25, we get into God's demonstration through the gospel, the, the bulk of this doxology. I find it very telling that the gospel is not something that Paul simply treasured up, pondered in his heart. We, we read about that in the life of Mary, thinking of the Christmas season, when she heard things about the Christ child and did just that. But but that wasn't what Paul did when his life was changed by Christ the Lord. Paul spoke about it. Paul had to speak about it. Everywhere he went, the gospel was on the tip of Paul's tongue. Some, some of your Bibles say that he preached it wherever he went. 
The, the word proclaiming or declaring is probably the better one. When we hear preach, we think of a podium, we think of a pastor, we think of a worship service. But the idea here is that followers of Jesus, wherever they go, have the gospel on the tip of their tongue and they speak it to people who need to hear it. Is that true of you? Are you a herald of the gospel? Are there people around you, family, friends, coworkers, neighbors, who, when your name is mentioned, would associate you with a pattern of speaking good news about Jesus? For Paul, it was personal, and for us, it should be too. The gospel's personal. What precisely is that gospel? We see that in verses 25 and 26. First, it's centered in the person of Jesus Christ. The gospel is the central theme of Romans from first to last. It's the gospel of God. It's good news for a lost and a sinful world. But it's, a, it's news. It's a gospel with a particular content and core. It's about a person who came into this world and upended history with his life. There's a personal component. The heart of the gospel is this. Jesus Christ, the righteous one, died for our sins, yours and mine, and rose again, and therefore triumphed over his enemies. So that now there is no condemnation, but everlasting joy for those who trust him. But the gospel is also comprehensive. It's cosmic. The gospel centers on Jesus, the Messiah, the one who fulfills the saving promises of the Old Testament, most of our Bibles. Promises being realized in the inclusion of all nations into the people of God. So that Gentiles, and that's most of us here, who show obedience from faith, show that they are children of Abraham. Many people look at the gospel and think of it as kind of God's plan B. The first attempt by God didn't work out, and so God had to do a course correction and introduce Jesus. But that's not true at all. The gospel was plan A from the beginning. Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve sinned, we see hints. After the flood, it was catapulted ahead as God began his work. The gospel summarized in Genesis 12 of sorts when God says to Abraham, I will bless you, and through you and your offspring, you will be a blessing to the peoples of the earth. And so the whole story of Israel throughout the Old Testament is the story of the progress of the gospel plan, that God was working in his people Israel to prepare them. Jesus didn't just drop out of the sky out of nowhere, but thousands of years of anticipation and preparation paved the way. That tells us that the gospel has been highlighted according to God's timeline. Sometimes looking back, hindsight allows us to see what we didn't see before. We get that in Paul's letter to the Galatians. Listen along how Paul describes the gospel with clarity. Galatians 3.23, Before the coming of this faith, he writes, we were held in custody under the law, speaking as a human being, especially as a Jew locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. 
So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who are baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Amazing statement. Chapter 4, verse 4, But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. Since you are his child, God has also made you an heir. Ah, now Paul describes what was there from the beginning, but not clearly seen or perceived. See now in all its glory. There's a word that Paul uses here in chapter 16, verses 25 and 26. It's the word mystery. And Paul describes a little bit what that mystery is. Three words for that. It was hidden, it was revealed, and it was made known. You'll see that there in your Bible. See, up until the time of Christ, what God was doing, the plan of God seemed blurry. It seemed obscure. Many people thought the Jews were the whole point of the story. And they were making a royal mess of their special treatment by God. Many people concluded, especially the Jews did, that the rest of the world was really an afterthought. In fact, they were the antagonists in the story. There was this pattern, though, of of sacrifice and judgment and redemption and sin and sacrifice and judgment. It became interminable. There would be no end to this. The story that never resolved itself. How could the plan of God be so doomed to failure? A lot of people read the Old Testament that way, then and now. But they don't look closely enough. The issue wasn't that you could know nothing of the mystery of God in the Old Testament. It's that you couldn't fully understand it or experience it until God revealed the ultimate parts. So when would that come? People waited. Have you ever experienced something wonderful, but the timeline of when it came was of great frustration to you? The answer is surely yes, it's part of the human experience. Here are some examples. The woman who dreams of her wedding day only to experience it years or decades after her plan. The the brilliant academic who waits far longer than everyone predicted in order to get his promotion, the one he or she thought was imminent. The the, the couple who endures in agony the, the expectation of a pregnancy and a birth, only to have that arrive many years later. The person who's ill or sick and suffering, waiting for treatment that comes far longer than they wanted. In each of those cases, there's this long-for scenario that over the passage of time, people conclude is a lost cause. We presently have uh, children who are asking for privileges that, that seem like they'll never come and have convinced themselves that with mom and dad, it's a lost cause. Maybe that we don't even care anymore. 
There are children, young children, some of you have them, who, who will wait until Christmas in a kind of cruel and unusual punishment that you're going to make them wait until the gift arrives. Many people concluded that's what God was doing before Christ. But in due time, what was hidden, what was concealed, became revealed. Because God ordained in his perfect time when the gospel would be displayed for all to see. God determined what the plot line was going to be, who the central character was going to be, the climactic scenes, the resolution of the conflict. There was this almost 400-year lull at the end of the Old Testament where it seemed like God was AWOL, that nothing was happening, that all was lost and abandoned. But in reality, God was just stretching out the intermission until he inserted himself again in the spotlight with the appearing of Jesus Christ. And when God did so, he came up close and personal. People were able to see and to hear and to touch the gospel of God. The the prophecies read about in the Old Testament that made people wonder, when will that happen? All of a sudden had been brought near. And Jesus showed it. His birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. All of a sudden, with new understanding, people had an aha moment. That's what God was talking about. And then Jesus came to say, and this good news, those who follow me go to the ends of the earth, to all nations, to make it known. Concealed, revealed, and now made known, our passage says. It is intended, the gospel is, to transform lives from among all nations. It's spoken about as something hidden, something secret that's now revealed. And the secret is that the gospel is available to all peoples, including Gentiles like you and me. That the wonder of the mystery is that Gentiles are included in God's plan. It wasn't just God's desire to bless the Jews as his chosen people. That's true. But he chose them. He blessed them so that they would be a blessing to all nations. Gentiles can now be fellow citizens, family members in the work of God. Doesn't it say that? Ephesians 3.6. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, sharers together in the promise in Jesus Christ. Chapter earlier, chapter 2 of Ephesians speaks of Jesus coming and breaking down the wall of hostility, the barrier, obliterating that. Tearing it down so that all peoples have access to the gospel without exclusion. Think, for instance, of a grand symphony where anyone who's got an instrument, anyone who's willing to follow the conductor can play. Not just those with the fancy tuxedos or the beautiful dresses, but those who are willing to play according to the conductor. The gates are open. In the scriptures, it was testified about and now has come true through Jesus Christ that the gospel is available to all. And the fruit of that work continues to this day. Paul pursued it to Rome and beyond. We pursue it from Columbus to the ends of the earth. The theme of Romans is that the gospel is on the move, that the gospel advances to regions beyond, that it goes to the great cities, that it goes up the mountains, that it goes into the tropics and the jungles, that the gospel goes to places where non-Christian religions seem dominant and the gospel does its work. It knows no bounds. 
what Paul said at the beginning of the letter to the Romans, he says here at the end of the letter to the Romans that the gospel is on the move. In fact, here's what it says in Romans chapter 1. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Sounds familiar to Romans 16. Regarding his son, who as to his earthly life in the flesh was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him, Paul writes, we received grace and apostleship, to call all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith for his namesake. There it is. And you also are among those Gentiles who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all in Rome who are loved by God, called to be his holy people, his saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Multiple phrases there at the beginning that sound suspiciously familiar at the end. One of them almost exactly the same wording literally, to the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles, Romans 16, 26. That's telling. Salvation, rescue, doesn't seem to be the end of God's plan. Rather, the goal is his glory. So if the glory of God is the ultimate goal of these verses, then the obedience of faith... Maturity in Christ isn't far behind. Some of you have what's called the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB, and it says this, to advance the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. Exactly right. The gospel is not just meant to be abstractly adored. Hmm, beautiful. It's meant to be personally embraced. Ah, for me. Many people have noticed, noted this about the Christian life, that we're saved by the grace of God. We're not saved as the result or as a reward for our good effort. We're not saved because of good enough works. Our obedience is not the basis of our right standing with God. Jesus' righteousness is. But, and this is key, our obedience is the fruit of our faith. Saving faith cannot leave you unchanged. Stott writes, the proper response to the gospel is faith, as Paul has stressed throughout his letter. But it is a faith which itself is obedient and which issues in a life of obedience. Here's what Paul underscores. The proclamation of the gospel is to go to the nations so that people will believe Jesus Christ and be saved. And then that their lives would be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, resulting in obedience and a witness to the glory of God in a lost and dying world. In other words, the gospel must go forth. The gospel must be taken to the nations. If there's any people group on planet Earth where faith in Jesus Christ is not producing conformity, to Jesus Christ, then God's aim for the gospel is not complete. Because the gospel is meant to go to all nations. And as it does, it will reach people whose lives will be saved and transformed and gladly obedient to God. 
See, Paul thought for his life that participation in this gospel was inevitable. He could not imagine otherwise. And he would say to each of us, you can't imagine otherwise either, can you? It's the invitation of the ages. And the success of the gospel is guaranteed. And that's why Paul speaks of God's exaltation for all eternity. Verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Christ Jesus. Amen. Don't let the good news of the gospel obscure the wonder, the glory of the great God behind it. In fact, the gospel rightly understood can't do that. The gospel rightly understood points to the magnificence, to the awesomeness, to the supremacy, to the wisdom of God himself. And that's why as Paul goes over familiar terrain in these last verses that he's been through in the first 16 chapters, the destination remains clear. God's glory is ultimate. Now to him, the only wise God, be glory forever. The central theme of Romans, friends, is that God has so arranged history that he will receive honor, praise, and thanksgiving. It's not about us. It's about him. And in his grace, he includes us in the family and sends us out on the mission. And therefore, we become key players in the gospel story. The song says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below, especially those who know him through Jesus Christ. They say to the praise of his glorious grace. And where was that scene? How was that scene and whom was that scene? We come back to the centerpiece of the gospel of God. Jesus Christ, our Lord. God's wisdom is seen in Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, above all in his cross, and in God's decision to save the world, not through its own wisdom, not yours, not mine, but through this emerging multiracial, multicultural church, this diverse church, and in his purpose ultimately to unite everything under Christ. The church of D Jesus Christ in all of our diversity is the grand billboard to the world of the gospel. And every local church, including Grace Polaris Church, is a key piece of that picture. According to the doxology, the end, the culmination of Romans, God is able to establish believers so that we persevere in the faith and therefore show off the glory of God. And the glory of God is precisely what our world needs to see. The gospel's power in you to strengthen you, to establish you, to anchor you shows that God deserves all the glory. Danny and our musicians are going to come. We're going to sing about the glory of God and the story of God that points to it. One song that we won't sing, though, says it well as well. Above all powers, above all kings, above all nature and all created things, above all wisdom and all the ways of man, you were here before the world began. Above all kingdoms, above all thrones, above all wonders the world has ever known, 
all the wealth and treasures of the earth, there's no way to measure what you're worth. Why? Because the glory of God is ultimate and we get to be reflections of that.